Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're joining us today. My name is Omar Arias. I'm lead economist in the Education Global Practice at the World Bank. And we are joining and getting together today for a, celebrating a very special day. Today is World Teachers Day or International Day for Teachers, however you call it. It is actually celebrated in different days all around the world, but it's fantastic that we have one day where globally we can all come together and celebrate and song heroes of our time, as, as some people have put it. We had an event like this last year, and so this is now becoming, I guess, a tradition for us. We're very happy here today to have a, a stellar panel of speakers. Uh, that will be uh, discussing with us a, a, a crucial issue, I think, uh, in these times uh, post-pandemic, which is uh, teachers' well-being, and we will get into into the details of, of that uh, with our with our panelists. But it's an issue that was important before COVID, but has become even more important during the pandemic, and now you know at the times where. We have most school systems reopen, children and, and kids coming back to school, but really with amplified stresses, both stemming from the pandemic, but also from the fact that there's a lot of catch-up learning that, that needs to happen. And of course, teachers are absolutely essential to that process. We will start today. The plan will be we will have opening remarks by, from our global director, Aime Saavedra. And from there, then Ali will introduce our panel. We will have, I hope we have time for a couple of rounds of questions. I do want to make sure that we bring in from you. So please do use the chat function to post your questions and I'll be getting some help to try to become on at least some of those and, and have our panelists address them. So again, without further ado, Jaime, please for your opening remarks. Thank you very much, Omar. And it's great to be to be here again in the World World Teachers Day. As you say, it is celebrated in different in different moments in different countries. But it's good to have at least one moment in which we can talk about the challenges of teachers. I mean, throughout the world. And I want to welcome my fellow speakers and and panelists who are joining us for this event. It's great to have this distinguished panel. And I want to thank everyone who is connected with us online as well. We we all know. That education is about social interaction and that in that process, teachers are the essential elements and that can make all the difference in students learning. They're probably most, most of the people in this, in this connection are adults, but we, we all adults at any age will remember the name of that teacher that inspired us. We'll remember, we remember by name that teacher who said something that changed our lives and also any teacher that made our lives miserable. So, and we will remember that throughout all our adult lifetimes. And that just is a, it's proof of the importance of teachers in defining teach children and youth well-being and their future lives. Teachers in that, res in that regard are, are to a large extent responsible for building that respectful learning environments that, that we need and fostering classroom inter interactions that are at the heart of the learning process. As a teacher is a source of support, guidance, and inspirations, and many of us know from our own school experience, a word of encouragement for a teacher can make a difference in a student's life. They, teachers can also make their, the students feel safe uh, in uncertain and challenging times, particularly, particularly when we're talking about children who might not have the right home environment. Teachers can connect them to the necessary resources, help them, help them in, the, in their own learning process, develop the social and emotional skills they need to succeed. Usually that those skills are taught 
by their own behavior, right? Not, not in social emotional skills 101, right? But in, the, in terms of that daily interaction with them. And teachers can inspire them to think about themselves and, the, and their world, world in new ways. And a, and a wide body of evidence, of, of scientific evidence, tells us that teachers are the most important factor in schools for student learning. So much so that moving from a low-performing teacher to a highly effective teacher can raise student learning by the equivalent of multiple years of schooling. But now, COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic has only, has only reinforced that teacher's crucial role in the student's life. Around the world, we saw many teachers go to tremendous lengths these past two years to ensure that their students could continue being connected to learning. Many teachers went above and beyond the call of duty as they so often do to respond to their student, students' needs. However, despite all these efforts, it was clear that in-person education cannot be easily replaced. If anything, the pandemic has shown that teachers and schools are an indispensable factor of the learning process are an indispensable place of socialization and learning. Technology also can, and, and we have seen that during the pandemic, can be, can help tremendously in order to, but, it, but, it, but it's always in order to make the work of teachers and principals more impactful because we all, that everything is about the human factor. Even the technology support is about the human factor. Teachers are fulfilling very complex and varied roles as we, as, as we have seen. So they really need to be supported and empowered. When I was minister of education, when I was in the other side of, of the, of the table, ta table, I led an education reform that really relied on teachers. That was the essential element of our, of our education reform in basic education. We needed teachers to ensure that children were learning, but at the same time, we need to support teachers through strong professional development, a robust and fair selection and promotion process. And also giving a lot of emphasis to teachers' welfare. We need to, to show that teachers, that we care about teachers' welfare, teachers' health, right? And even to the simple daily classroom challenges, like their posture to avoid back problems, right? That are things that will worry a teacher on a day-to-day -day basis and can, can have an impact on, the, on, on, on her performance and the, work, and, and the work that she does with, with, with students. So caring about teachers' welfare which is caring about the most valuable resource in the, in the education process, I see it as an essential function of ministries of education, something that we don't really see always, right? That's something that it's be, that is seen as part of the job, right? Of the human resources job, right? Of ministries of education. Now, we need to recognize now that we are living today, 2022, a very complicated moment. We are living a learning crisis. We had a learning crisis before the pandemic, and that crisis has been deepened by this pandemic. So we need to support and empower teachers now more urgently than ever. As, as we have seen in the data that has been produced by the, by the World Bank with partners with UNICEF and UNESCO, the share of 10-year-olds around the world that are unable to read a simple sentence or a simple text, which was already at 53% before the pandemic, that might be shooting up at 70% with our simulations. So that, that means that the majority of children, even those who are completing primary school, not, even, not, not only those who are out of school, but even those who are completing primary school in low and middle income countries, many, many of them lack the essential foundational skills that are critical for life. The learning recovery that is needed today, that is an intensive, an intensive and aggressive process that education systems, right, have to undertake now, right, will simply not be possible without teachers 
as the essential factor. If we want to succeed, teachers must be at the top of the global education policy agenda and at the national, that's more important, at the national education policy agenda, ensuring that teachers are well-prepared and supported throughout all the stages of their career. The learning recovery will be very challenging for the school systems and for teachers. Children are returning to school. Yes, that's progress. It's better than having school closed, as unfortunately we have seen for almost two years in many regions of the world, which has been, been a dramatic shock to children. Children now are returning to school after that very traumatic experience, but also with very large and heterogeneous levels of learning losses, right? Some have lost a little, many, many, many have lost a lot. And then teachers are receiving a very heterogeneous classroom, right? Teachers know that all children are different within the classroom. All children require different levels of support. All children have different, different preferences and different styles different characteristics, but now that heterogeneity is even larger, right? Because a fifth grade, a, a, a teacher from fifth grade is receiving students who have the competencies of a fourth grader or a third grader, or even a second grader, right? Given that many of them have been really disconnected for a very long time from school. So managing that classroom is a huge and gigantic challenge. Every child needs a teacher, but what happens with that teacher is at the edge of exhaustion and burnout, right? Given this very complex challenge. As well here today, teachers' well-being includes many dimensions, beginning from teachers entering through pre-service training and continuing through, through careers. And let me mention a few issues. First, we need a pre-service training institution that should work to attract and select capable, motivated candidates and provides rigorous learning and training opportunities through coursework and through practical teaching opportunities. And that element of practical teaching opportunities is something that sometimes we do not see in many low and middle income countries. And that's a huge mistake. And that's why that's in, in our, that's why the, at the World Bank, the, our teachers professional development program has been changed to change, changing name. And the name is coach just to reflect, right? The type of support that teachers need. Second, as new teachers enter into the profession, they should be comprehensively supported by mentors and peer groups and continuously build up and develop their teaching skills. That is a permanent process, right? You never stop learning on how to be a better, a better teachers. Third, throughout their careers, teachers should have ongoing tailored and high quality professional development opportunities. And finally, in the classroom, they should have the tools needed to teach well, right? And in their schools, they should have safe working conditions, realistic workloads, and stripping as much as possible of the administrative tasks that sometimes they are, they are burdened with and be supported by school leaders who must motivate and encourage them. And finally, teachers should be fairly compensated, reflecting that critical role that they play in society. As we celebrate World Teachers Day today, there will be no learning recovery. That I want to emphasize. There will be no learning recovery without motivated and supported teachers. Without doing that, without that effective support to teachers, we are not only failing teachers, but we're also risking, we're also risking failing an entire generation of students. So it's a huge homework. And it's an urgent homework that we really need to start today. With that, let me close. And I look forward to a great discussion today on how to improve the characteristics of the teaching of the teaching profession and how to worry more and better about teachers' well-being, which is caring about the most important resource that we have in the education process. Thank you very much. Over to you, Omar. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jaime, for setting setting up the stage for our, our conversation. And 
And I want to <clears throat> invite everybody throughout the, this panel to hold that thought of that teacher, as you said, Jaime, that we all remember. And there may be more than one, but certainly uh, at least one teacher that we all remember have made an, a huge impact in, in our lives. So we we can now uh, move to our uh, panel uh, conversation. We, as I said at the beginning, we are privileged to have a, a distinguished panel today. It will be a difficult job for me to try to keep time, given that this, I think we can have a, a full conversation with any any of them, but we, we obviously won't be able to do that. First of all, let me introduce Keisha Thorpe, who is winner of the latest Global Teacher Prize. Welcome, Keisha, and, and congratulations on, on that. She's currently an English teacher for 12th grade students in the, at the International High School at Langley Park in Maryland, so not far from where I am now. Again, thank you for taking the time and I guess to, to your students also uh, for letting you take time to, to be with us. We have Daniela uh, Labra, who is director of FUTE. It's an organization in Mexico that is working actually on the ground, precisely on, on this issue of uh, how to improve teachers' uh, well-being. Thank you again, uh, Daniela, for, for joining us. Chris Henderson, the chair for Teachers in Crisis Context, the Interagency Network of Education in Emergencies. It's an organization that for which this issue of teacher well-being is, is nothing new, I guess. And, and we'll, we'll hear more about that from, from you, Chris. Thank you again for joining Eleonora Villegas-Reimers, who's a clinical professor and chair of teacher and learning at the Department of Education at Boston University. He's a very distinguished and well-known researcher on education policy, particularly on, on issues related to teachers' professional development. Thank you for joining us, Nora. Andreas Leifer, who does not, I think, need a lot of introduction. He's well-known as a global leader in education, a partner for us at the bank, director for education and skills at the OECB. And, and I guess best known for creation of PISA. Welcome, Andreas, and thank you for joining us. And last but not least, we have a Tara Dale from our own family at the bank. Until not long ago, she was one of our global lead for teachers and is currently the human development program leader for Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. And she's joining us from a very different time zone. Thank you so much, Tara, for making the time. And we hope not to keep you too late. Okay, without further ado, again, thank you to, to all of you for joining us. L let me start with you, Keisha. And, and I, you know, I want to start with you because I, I think we need to start in the classroom. We need to hear from you. What does it mean or what has it meant for you to come back to school after, you know, whether it was long school closures or hybrid periods of learning? What, what has it felt? I mean, this issue of teacher burnout, the issues of demotivation, having to cope with the fact that kids have a lot of learning loss to catch up with. Can you please describe, paint the situation for us? Thank you. Uh, well, I would like to say thank you all for having me. It's always a great pleasure to be invited to this discussion and to just really share my experience in the classroom. I think a lot of times we, these discussions are had without teachers. So it's really important that teachers get a space to really talk about these issues that we are experiencing firsthand. I mean, we are first on the ground. We are first responders. And that's how, that's what happened in COVID. We were the first responders. And I don't think that a lot of that was valued much because I think most people expect teachers to show up just like they expect doctors to show up. And so they don't 
they don't see the challenges that we go through every day. You know, even though one of my mantra is heart work is not hard work, you know, we have to build, we have to understand that there's still challenges in education. Just because you got up, you get up every morning with a passion and you put everything aside to show up for your students doesn't mean that teachers are not going through their own personal things. One of the things that we've, we've seen that COVID had remind us is that, you know, inclusive practices. A lot of our students were left behind. And as I hear the word recover, recover, learning loss, you know, those, the, those are some real things that happened during COVID. A lot of our students were left behind. And then it magnified a lot of the inclus uh, inclusive practices and then also inclusion policies that are, were not in place to make sure that all of our students had uh, equal opportunity to thrive during that time. And so the lack of, you know, recovering from learning, the learning loss has been one of the major challenge for us. I also teach English language learners who did not particularly have a lot of interactions with native speakers. And so we see that a lot of our students really fell behind because they did not have that one-on-one -on -one interaction in the classroom with teacher support. And so as we go back into the classroom, those are still things that we're, we're struggling with. And, you know, teachers, and then we go back into these schools to try to recover a lot of these things. And then we run into other things like lack of funding. You know, teachers still, teachers still needed to be trained for what we call the new, the new education, you know, the, the new form of education and the tools that were, were needed to also help to recover from those loss. Those things were not available to teachers. And some of those teachers come in undertrained. They feel underwork. I mean, the list goes on. You know, teachers have had their also, also have their fair share of challenges with, in their own homes, you know, the death of parents and loved ones and a lot of other things that occur and they're dealing with their own mental well-being and they have to also put their own mental well-being to the side and then show up for students every day. And I think they become exhausted in many ways. And we think that, you know, most of them also did not get supported by their school administrations or their school districts who expect them to show up every day. And with the high teacher shortages, many of the teachers also have to work overtime, covering their, their colleagues' classes, you know. So instead of really planning our lessons, we're, we're covering classes for other teachers who are out or other teachers who have not been hired yet to cover, to cover those spaces. Some of our classrooms are overcrowded because they have to combine classes to compensate for teacher shortages. And our teachers just don't feel as supported, you know. So as time it says, you know, we need to make sure that we're empowering our teachers and we're supporting them. Teachers are students' greatest resource. And I'll say that again. Teachers are students' greatest resource, not the building, not the computers, you know, nothing else that's in that building, but teachers. And we have to show up for them. And teachers are, you know, with, with the learning loss, to really ensure that the millions of children around the world receive the quality of education that is needed to give them a better chance at life, we have to really equip teachers with the skills and the support that they need to, in order to do so. You know, I just also want to echo what Jaime said earlier again too, is that, you know, teachers need to be top, top of the global and national agendas. You know, there needs to be more value 
placed on the teaching profession and not just more value placed on the teaching profession, but more value placed on teachers' lives. You know, we need that support as well. And if we are to show up for all of our students and, you know, they always say, are the students well? You know, we need to ask, are the teachers well? Because in order for us, in order for students to be well, teachers also have to be well. So we have to, again, we have to make sure that they feel empowered and supported in all, in all the different ways, because the pandemic has really not just impacted our students, but we also have to look at how it's impacted teachers and make sure that we're giving them the necessary support as well. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Keisha, for, I mean, I think describing in, in, in such detail the, the reality and a, a reality which, you know, we can only think is amplified, certainly in the countries where, where we work, where, you know, school systems lack resources and they actually were very, very challenged already before the pandemic. So th thank you very much for that. Andreas, I, I want to bring you now for us, what can you tell us about any data that we have, and, and we know that, of course, the pandemic actually put a halt to lots of efforts on, on data collection, obviously, but what can you tell us about any, any data from surveys about this issue, teachers' well-being, how teachers have been impacted during the pandemic, whether recently or, or, or before? Please. Yeah, thanks, and thanks for inviting me to this conversation. You know, first of all, you know, teacher well-being tends to be a popular topic on, you know, a day like World Teacher Day. But actually, the very few countries that have actually intentional strategies built around teacher well-being, where this is part of policy design, you know, often they use relative proxies, you know, like salaries and working conditions. Jaime mentioned those as well. And, you know, just, you know, beginning of the week, we published again, you know, comparison of teacher, you know, working conditions with those of workers in other high school profession. Teachers don't do so well, but actually they are quite poor predictors for teacher well-being. We do not find that much of a relationship between pay and teacher well-being or class size and well-being and so on. You know, when you ask yourself what drives, you know, the you know, teacher job satisfaction, teacher well-being, that's often more to do with the work culture in schools. Like, you know, the collaborative culture teachers say, the more I work with my colleagues on collaborative professional development, the more I engage in classroom observation, the more I engage in joint activities in cross-curricular project-based learning activities. This is what is the best predictors that we have, at least for the satisfaction of teachers with their job, which is probably a better proxy for, for the well-being. Also, <clears throat> in our Thales survey, when we ask uh, teachers, why did you become a teacher? Because again, that sense of mission is a very important correlate to a well-being. If I do not feel I have that agency and can do what I became a teacher for. And when you ask teachers that question, the number one answer is, you know, I want to make a difference to the lives of students. And the design of many of our education systems drives that component out. We have, you know, tailorized work organization in schools where, you know, you as a teacher teach, and then you have a social worker, a psychologist, but that holistic set of responsibility has become actually quite rare. That is where, you know, that well-being, that job satisfaction often comes from. You know, when we, during the pandemic, it was so interesting when we looked actually the <clears throat> predictors of learning loss that start looking at through that from the student perspective. 
the most important predictor for learning loss was not, you know, the hours of, you know, homework that you got or the access to digital technology. It was actually that student-teacher relationship where students felt, you know, I have a teacher who understands who I am, who I want to become, who actually connects with me. That was the number one predictor. And that really, I think, as Keisha also just highlighted, you know, learning is not a transactional business. It's always a social, a relational enterprise. And that is where teacher well-being really comes from. And so looking more carefully at, you know, how do we design work environments for teachers, where teachers can, you know, fulfill what they feel to be their mission, where they feel supported by their colleagues, where they see growth for their professional development, where they work in, with a high degree of professional autonomy and yet in a collaborative culture. I think those are the aspects that we should probably pay a lot more attention to beyond the basics, you know, like salaries and, you know, class size and, and things like this. The last point I want to make is, you know, teacher well-being is probably also, and Jaime said this as well, our best bet to, to actually improve student well-being. You know, when we actually measured the social and emotional skills of students in, in our last survey, when we looked at, you know, curiosity, creativity, empathy, trust, you know, assertiveness, resilience, all of those variables, the number one predictor quality of student-teacher relationships. Once again, my students feel, you know, I have someone who knows who I am, who accompanies me on my journey. You could feel, and therefore also, you know, giving teachers greater space to engage with learners outside the formal instructional setting. And some countries that are doing really well on, on, on well-being actually do that quite, quite deliberately. But I, I think, you know, we have to look at many of those issues much more carefully and also find much better ways to, to measure this. There is no country that I would say has yet, you know, either, you know, a good, you know, measure of teacher well-being or in a, a very clear policy, at least not from the OECD countries, which I know best. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andreas, for sharing with us what we've learned, in fact, from the, the, the TALIC surveys, which are a really rich instrument and we hope to have updated data soon now that, of course, all these data field efforts are back on track. Nora, let me now pose to you the question similarly, I mean, uh, from research. I mean, we may not have systematic data that we can compare across countries recently, but there have been studies both in the U.S. and in other countries about this issue, the impact that the pandemic has had on, on teachers' well-being specifically. What, what have we learned from that research? Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for having me in here today with you. I want to echo what both Keisha and Andrea have said, and want to emphasize several points. One is that research actually before the pandemic show us already that some of the issues that we're seeing now post-pandemic were there. So it was not that the pandemic created an issue of lack of respect to the teachers or a need for stronger professional development or paying more attention to the teacher's well-being. But the pandemic clearly made it sort of brought more in focus of what was going on. And it's something that we need to pay attention to. The second thing is that when we look at what we know about social-emotional learning of teachers, we have to pay, we usually, when we are preparing teachers, we usually talk about the example of the of when you are in an airplane and you need to put the oxygen mask on first before you put it on somebody else to help. And we try to prepare teachers when they go through very specific teacher preparation programs that they need to take care of their own social emotional needs. And 
we teach them in a way strategies about how to develop working groups so that they have a network so that they can rely on one another. But that happens in very, very particular conditions in very particular countries. So when we're trying now to understand what's going on now as a result of the pandemic, there are several things that I need, that I want to emphasize. One is that even though we're talking about teachers as if they are one group, actually we have to separate teachers by the age group that they teach. It's a very, very different set of needs if you're teaching preschool, that if you're teaching early childhood or elementary or secondary, or if you're teaching in special education settings, because the needs of the students and your needs and your preparation are very, very different. But the second thing is that we also need to pay attention, of course, to the countries or the context or the societies where they are. Even within the same country, it's not the same if you are in a very sort of wealthy school or well-resourced school and one that struggles day to day, because that, even though is not necessarily the key to solve all the, you know, the social emotional learning issues, it is certainly a variable that pays attention to that. Now, when we look at teachers, we usually need to separate also the need of, usually some people say, if you were to put it very quickly, there are two variables that we need to pay attention to. One is teacher salary, and the other one is teachers' sense of feeling respected. And as Andrea said, well, that explains only to a point. It really does not explain the whole story. But one of the things that we're finding is that even leave the salary alone, I, we, we can discuss that to the end, but let me focus on the other aspect of the piece of feeling respected. Is feeling respected by who? And feeling respected how? And we have to separate that interpersonal, interpersonal feeling of being respected, respected by your colleagues, respected by the families of the, of the students that you're working with, respected by the principal in your school that is taking your opinion or not into account. But we also need to think about at a bigger macro level of how we as societies, and I include in there almost every country in the world, how do we show respect to teachers in terms of including them in big decision-making? How many teachers are involved in education reforms? Where is the teacher's voice when we're planning large movement of changing the education system or changing the curriculum? How are we involving teachers to demonstrate to them, both in a micro and in a macro level, we count on your knowledge and expertise. We trust you as professionals who have a very expert, expert kind of knowledge that no other professional has, because teaching is, after all, a profession with very specific technical knowledge and skills that well-prepared teachers develop. So we really need to look at both the personal and the professional and look at how teachers are feeling that way. I am, and with this I close quickly, but I am engaged right now trying to study in the United States, we're saying, we're seeing what other countries are seeing too, but not all countries, which is that many teachers are abandoning the profession and that it's becoming increasingly more difficult to attract strong people to come into the profession, to come into teacher preparation program. So I have begun to do a very small research study right now in the United States not with the teachers who are leaving, we have a lot of studies about, about that, it's with the teachers who are staying. And what are we learning about those teachers who are choosing to stay despite it all? 
And what we're finding is basically that they are finding sources of feeling useful, feeling valued, and feeling that they can really make a change in the, in the life of children. So they go back to that original idea of, I became a teacher because I wanted to work with children and I wanted to be an actor of social change. And if they can remember that, then the feeling of I'm doing something important and I'm being valued for that really is sort of key to keep them, at least for now, to keep them. My question is, is that going to be enough unless we change something down the line? But for now, for those who are staying, that seems to be working. So respect at the personal and at the professional level, at the micro and at the national level is really key to really help with the well-being of teachers today, given the, the fact of the after the pandemic. Thank you, Eleonora, very much for, for sharing that. And I, and I actually will want to come back to you on, on this question on, you know, what we can, can we do for improving retention of teachers? Because this is an issue in, in many countries. And in many countries, actually, we have a gap already. So which, which will become even worse unless we are actively implementing policies to address the problem. I want to move now to, you know, I think we have a very good, I guess, picture of the situation, but what can be done? So I, I want to now invite Daniela to, to share with us the experience from Atentamente in Mexico. Again, this is a, a program that predates COVID with a lot of experience working at relatively large scale. What can you tell us about the experience from the program before and during COVID? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Omar. And thank you, everyone. And it's an honor to be here. And, and thank you for what you've been sharing. So I, I wanted to, talk, to tell you about this program we've done. The program we've worked with is called Educating for Wellbeing. So that's at the core. And that was, as you said, from before. No? So that is really the goal of the program. And we focus on adult social and emotional competency development. So teachers are always at the center, but not only teachers, the principals, the supervisors, whatever, I mean, whatever in each country must be different, right? But I mean, the structure of administration and people that are affecting or interacting with that school. So not just the teacher, but everyone, all the adults there. And the way we do it is we want to give these capacities for these adults to really improve their well-being and build those caring and supportive, protective learning environments. So that is what we focus on. And the way we do, do this is combining a professional educator training where we teach the how to develop these capacities. And then, of course, we have a curriculum for students we have a leadership piece that I think is really much aimed as what you were saying in how do we transform the whole system so the whole school and the whole system will be really much more focused and, and capable of fostering that well-being for the whole community in, in a sustainable way. And we do also give them re resources to engage parents because we know how parents are so important also in this, in this aim. So in the last three years, we've been working like with 12,500 preschool teachers, more or less across 10 states in Mexico. And it's, it's an intensive training with a leadership component. We do have like 140 hours of training. Why? 
because well-being is a skill. You need time for that development. No, you need time to develop those healthier relationships and that self-awareness, et cetera. So what we see, and we've done assessments on this and we're doing an RCT now, we're getting the results from that. And what we see the benefits of the program are mainly in self-awareness, in emotional regulation, pro-sociality, and this self-efficacy and psychological distress. The main, main effects really come in improved self-regulation and pro-sociality and this sense of self-efficacy. And, you know, in the self-awareness component, and I this really matches with what you're saying, what, what Eleonora was saying right now, and also what Andreas was saying, what everybody's saying, the sense of purpose. Self-awareness is one of the, our components is purpose, meaning. So really recovering, you know, their meaning and why you're doing what you're doing. So how do we see this, the benefit? You know, how, how are we helping teachers with their well-being? We come from this framework where we see well-being has different aspects that are malleable. And there are four crucial aspects to this well-being. And one is that awareness. And we add to this the capacity to come back to recover your ease and your calm within, you know, like disturbances. The connection or capacity to establish healthy and nurturing relationships, that's the second. The third is what we call insight. So the really understanding how you think and how you think about yourself, how you think about others. And the last is purpose, definitely. Connecting back to your, to your meaning, to the sense of why you're doing things. So we focus on the main focus and I think this has been something we, we saw from even from before when we were doing science teaching, you know, and if the teacher doesn't have the competence, if we don't give them the time, the capacity to help them build their own capacities, they cannot teach. Like we know that for everything, right? <laughs> if you don't know, you, they have to come first. Even as they're working with the kids, because they love what we've seen, teachers always want to work with the kids immediately, share with the kids, but they still need our emphasis was always on their own capacity building. And in terms of well-being and the skill of well-being and of all the social emotional competency, you have to be a model. You have to be the person. You can't say, you have to be. So I think that that is the thing. We, we help them deal with the complexity of their emotions and and we cannot stop the challenges in life, but we help teachers have a broader perspective, connect to their purpose as educators, and we give them the how not to be swept away by anxiety, depression, stress, anger. These things that we see are so, like you have all mentioned, and we see so the teachers express them, we know they're there. And then they tell us, just to give you this example, how first, you know, before they felt incapable of dealing with the situation, incapable of dealing with the pandemic and the post-pandemic challenges like you were all mentioning them, and how through this program they feel enthused, how they, help, how they feel more excited, reconnected, or more capable of dealing with what's happening and to stay in school. So we see them going from, I wanted to quit that I want to really be here, you know? So that is something I think you are all addressing. This connecting through empathy, through appreciation and gratitude is also core. You know? They develop this closeness and care for their students and with their peers. And the directors tell us how they see the workplace climate change, how they see the classrooms change. And of course, if teachers are reporting 
in self-reporting about their children, how they are more self-regulated. Well, I'm talking about preschoolers. These data are for preschoolers, how they're more regulated and how they're more pro-social. So of course, if you recover, and I think this really addresses what you're saying, if you recover, or maybe not, of course, but it's something that you're all saying. So I feel like, yes, <laughs> recovering this sense of meaning, knowing how to deal with this inner turmoil, connecting deeply with others and strengthening your sense of capability. We see that all of these factors are diminishing their perceived stress and increasing their well-being. So that's what we, that's what we see now. That's what the data is showing and what the teachers are telling us. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing, for sharing that experience and, and actually bringing some optimism that <laughs> in fact, it, it is actually possible to redress the, the situation and, and focus more directly on improving teachers' well-being through interventions like programs like Atentamente. Chris, I want to bring you now, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, the, this issue is obviously not new to the work of, you know, the work of, of teachers in fragile and contexts affected by violence. Can you tell us what has been the experience again, whether it's, you know, before or, or during the pandemic in those settings and what have we learned from, from those experiences? Thank you so much. And I, I just want to say that, yeah, Daniela, that optimism is contagious and I think we all need a decent dose of it right now. But I also want to start with a couple of sound bites that really echo what all of us are saying. And the first is acknowledging that, yes, there is a global teacher shortage. You know, UNESCO estimates that upwards of 69 million teachers are needed to address this shortage. But as a colleague of mine recently said, in fact, we don't have a teacher shortage. We have a shortage of care. And if we can start to focus in on that shortage of care, we might start to look at some issues around attracting you know, high qualified graduates into the teaching profession, but also start to look at some of those issues with the attrition and, and retention of teachers also. And another soundbite I think is really key to this conversation is, you know, one of the major funding agencies for education and emergencies is education cannot wait. And a key thing we're thinking about now is that we're right, education cannot wait, but without quality qualified teachers, education just doesn't work. And so particularly when we look at education and emergencies and that central role that teachers play, we really have to think about this equation of, you know, what is teacher well-being? What keeps them in the job and what keeps them committing, committed to working in, in some of the most challenging contexts we can imagine? And so for us, from an education and emergencies perspective, thinking about teacher well-being really comes down to what we're all saying. It's, it's that job satisfaction. It's that sense of purpose and that sense of belonging in the classroom. And the most simple way I can think of that is what a teacher is able to do and what a teacher is free from. And particularly in crisis context, it's their ability to teach effectively, regardless of the resources that are provided in their classrooms. We should encourage the best resourcing possible, but giving them the, the pedagogical skills, the relational skills to, to work effectively in those contexts where, where children and teachers themselves are contending with a high level of, of trauma and stress. And the other key issue is, is the freedom from, and that might be freedom from those daily stresses in conflict or, or post-disaster settings that actually make the work of, work of teaching a risk in and of itself. And so I think our key role, as much as we need to think about effective interventions to support teacher well-being and mental health is more so to address some of those underlying causes of stress. And 
if I can, just because so many of us have already talked about this, I'd, I'd like to bring in two really brief stories. You know, and, and this is a, talking about those underlying factors of distress. You know, I was recently working with a teacher called Abir in, in Palestine. And even though he only lived five kilometers from his school, to get to school each morning could take one, two, or three hours because he was having to go through military checkpoints. He was often subject to arbitrary detention, interrogation. And that was only the start of his day. When he was at school, in the classroom, he was then working with students who, you know, the day before or the week before had experienced numerous instances of violence on the streets, at home. And he even talked about instances where, you know, buildings, including the mosque, had recently, be de recently been demolished right next to his school. Tear gas had been fired into the staff room. And, you know, having to continue teaching, to continue making sure that you can cause learning, you can build the social and emotional skills and learners, you can support their psychosocial needs and prepare them for high stakes exams, while at the same time contending with this high level of stress. And one of the biggest causes of distress is the fact that teachers like Abir in Palestine are underpaid and unsure of when that pay will even arrive in their bank accounts. So their, their basic needs from shelter and food perspectives for their families are, are also a major cause of distress. And another quick story is, you know, working with a teacher like Nurul in the refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh. You know, Nurul is a phenomenal teacher. I mean, he's, he's teaching in, in four languages at the same time in a single classroom with multi-age, multi-grade students with a high level of psychosocial needs. But he's doing this masterfully, yet he's only making 15 US dollars a month. He's not allowed to leave his camp. He's not allowed to collaborate or coordinate with teachers and other learning centers at neighboring camps. And so he's experiencing you know, a huge restriction on his freedom, and yet he's doing a remarkable job. And what stands out to me with, with Nurul and how we can better support his well-being, it's actually flipping the conversation about who Nurul is. So rather than seeing Nurul as underqualified, unmotivated, undercommitted to the role of teaching, and working in a very low resource context, how can we shift that conversation to, here's a young man who through multiple languages is meeting some of the most complex learning and psychological needs imaginable, and he's doing it incredibly well. But yet when we talk to humanitarian agencies and talk about the role of teachers and who teachers are, particularly in context of displacement and, and refugee settings, it becomes a deficit conversation. It's everything teachers lack, everything teachers can't do, and I think we need to flip this conversation. And I feel that if we do, we can start to better address these well-being needs because it comes back to what we're all saying. It's around that respect for teachers, around amplifying teacher status and that central role they play. And so just to finish, and as a quick plug for the work that the Interagency Network for Education and Emergencies is doing, we've, we've worked through a process. We've developed a compendium of case studies looking specifically at teacher well-being in numerous crisis contexts. And so there's some really powerful examples of how interventions that address the immediate needs, but also some of the underlying causes are having really positive success. So those promising practices are important. We've also done a gap analysis of what interventions are working and what interventions are not working for teachers. And from the 130 resources we assessed and the over 1,000 teachers that we surveyed, one of the key things they said was that so many of the resources are produced in the global north for teachers who are predominantly experiencing conflict and crisis in the global south. And so they said to us that 75% of those resources are incompatible with their daily needs. And so I think we also need to look at how do we bring teachers to the table, not just in terms of policy, 
formation and implementation, but in terms of the development and implementation of resources too. And the final point I'd like to make and the final plug is we've recently published the guidance note for teacher wellbeing in emergency settings, which is aligned with the INEE minimum standards for education. And we've just piloted a workshop on that guidance note in Palestine. And the biggest thing that teachers were saying to us is that they want to be involved in decision-making. They want to feel that they've got a role to determine the status of their profession, but also how their profession is perceived in the, in the public, public view. And yeah, one thing a teacher said to us, which I thought was so, so powerful. She said, I can't imagine a public health response without having an epidemiologist at the table. So why are there all these education responses with no teachers at the table? So as much as you asked me to talk about well-being, I think well-being is this whole systems level equation where we need to look at what teachers are able to do, but also what they are free from. Thank you. Thanks, thanks to you for well, reminding us indeed that the, the issue, we need to put it in larger context. And I, and I see several of the, you know, fellow panelists nodding while you were speaking. So I think there's a lot of agreement and, and I think Kisha, I will want to come back to you on, on this question of empowerment. But before that, Ada, you're here sitting you now to share the experiences that we have at the bank on, on working on these issues. The bank has a large portfolio on basic education and literally, I think every single project has some activity or component supporting teachers. What, what have we learned from those programs in terms of, you know, things that can be done to improve teacher well-being? So Mark, so let me begin by saying that supporting teachers to be their best, to do their best has been a key objective in each one of the pro projects that I have worked on, whether it's uh, basic education or tertiary education. But this has not been without its challenges. And, you know, let me talk about two types of challenges that I have found when we talk about teacher welfare with client governments. The first is just a lack of awareness. You know, the kind of things that Chris was talking about, these things are not taken seriously enough. You know, what it means to teach in a classroom where the windows are broken and rain is pouring in and where, you know, the kids are getting wet or the supplies haven't reached or there's simply no other teacher to talk to or discuss things with. You know, you know these, these, these things are not really discussed or for that matter, if there are children who have different types of needs and these are large classrooms, Somehow the fact that this can be a very stressful profession is not acknowledged enough in the ministries that I have engaged with. And, you know, the, the words I hear most often are words such as teacher professional development and teacher accountability. I don't hear the word motivation that much. And one reason for this could be that motivation is seen as something, is conceived as something that is very individual. It's a very personal thing and is therefore not policy amenable. But that's not really true. You know, what we've heard Chris speak about, Daniela speak about, these are things that can be affected using policy. And, you know, you know, governments now are under a lot of pressure to build back better. So here, I think, is where there's an opportunity and some of the lessons that we've learned are that. Some types of, types of interventions do work, and there are interventions that one could have at the pre-service education level as well as in-service. And uh, to give you two quick examples of pre-service education experience, one lesson that we've learned is, comes from Singapore, where social-emotional learning is integrated 
within the pre-service curriculum at every point. Teachers have to work on projects. Teachers have to understand how to regulate their emotions, how to label emotions, and how to manage students who are going through a difficult time. So when they get into a real classroom, they're prepared with these skills. Another piece of evidence and learning that we have, not from our, one of our client countries, of course, but important all the same, is from Teach from, for America. And in Teach for America, all teachers, when they start, they receive this wellness toolkit and they are encouraged to come up with a wellness plan and they are told about where they can get wellness resources. So it's, it's really recognized that this is an important thing that they have to be prepared with before they enter the classroom. And then once they are in the classroom, again, there are instances where there have been effective interventions. And most recently, if we look at a Professor Zhu, who won the Yidan Prize, he has this teacher growth model in his program in the New Education Initiative, where he regularly engages with teachers. He has something called, uh, called this meta called Two Teachers, where he encourages them to ask him questions. And he's built these online platforms and communities for teachers to engage in. They read and they're encouraged to read different kinds of articles and talk to each other and sort of building the professional prestige of the profession in that way. So that's another example. But you know, even in more resourced countries, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, we have interesting examples of structured peer support groups having really helped teachers when they have to deal with drastic changes. And then more broadly, you know, in Macedonia, when COVID hit, there were wellness exercises which were included in education TV, both for students and teachers. So that's sort of one type of opportunity that we have with the, when, when governments have not always quickly recognized that this is a problem. We have solutions now and we have the need to build back better. So we can use that opportunity to use these examples. But there's another type of challenge that also comes in. And again, this was alluded to by Chris, which is that teachers have to deal with the system, which does not help them operate professionally. Pay comes in months too late. This used to be a recurring problem in the country in which I'm sitting right now in Laos. And that's just one part of it. Teachers have to jostle to be able to get allocated to a particular school. They, there's no regular process for it. Teacher appointments, teacher transfers, as I mentioned, as well as just getting their routine dues. It's a nightmare. It's about cultivating connections. And that's how the system is built. Their vested interests in that. And this is just so demoralizing for teachers, so stressful and so demoralizing if that's how you have to do it because there are no transparent or efficient systems to fix that problem. And obviously this has been a somewhat tougher challenge to deal with because we have to, you know, there are, there are reasons why the system is that way. But one of the things that we have started to work with and talk more about at the bank is to have grievance redressal mechanisms set up through our projects, which allow teachers to reach out when they have problems or issues, when the pay hasn't come in or when they have specific complaints about the appointment process. Of course, this is, this is a bit of a challenge to run a good grievance redress mechanism as well, because you have to know what type of complaints and problems can be answered by whoever responds, and then what types have to go up to another level. So it's still work in progress. But I think there's a lot of promise here. It's been done very successfully in New York City public schools, which is probably one of the most politicized political school systems around. So I think there is hope there. So those would be, I think, the, the sort of 
challenges we've encountered and the kind of lessons we've learned and opportunities we've identified. Thanks, Omar. Thanks to you for, for bringing those examples. I, I have a lot of questions being shared with me from the chat. So this is a good problem to have, actually. We, we, we have half an hour, so I'm going to try to now bring in those questions in, into the conversation so we can obviously have our audience engaged. The, there are some common threads in, in the questions. One is this, again, this issue of retention and attracting good teachers or people who have that sense of being or wanting to be a, a teacher, how, how can we do that? So that's one, one there's, there's questions related to pay and whether indeed, you know, I think Andres was mentioning, well, okay, salaries are not necessarily from, from the research, the best predictor of well-being, but there are contexts and situations where perhaps, you know, salaries are just too low. And, and so what can be done in those contexts? What do we know? And then questions related to empowerment of teachers, which again, were, were touched by all of you. Let, let me come back to you, Kisha, and, and ask you, you know, if you can please imagine you're talking to your fellow teachers who are currently thinking to give up because, you know, again, they're burned out because of all the issues that have been discussed. What would you tell them directly? And second, what would you tell policymakers in terms of what needs to be done to help them and, and attract those that you know, maybe thinking about it, but I'm not sure because they, they feel that the conditions are, are just not going to be right. Please. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard a lot said, and you know, one of the things that we really have to do is we have to really look at the underlying root causes of all of the inequalities and inequities that lie in our education system, because we want that long-term sustainability in education, but Really and truly, it, it's going to require fundamental change of the system and also at the school level to really ensure this kind of lasting impact. Well, we have to begin to create some kind of equal and equitable education policy to close some of the achievement gaps, you know, to make sure that all of our students have an opportunity to be successful. Government, you know, when we talk about education policies, you know, the government legislators and all those policymakers, we have to get to a point of thinking about the problems that, lay, that lie in education and really focus, when they focus on those problems and creating better legislate, legislations around education, it allows teachers to be in the classroom and really focus on what they know best, their practice, and also just really focus on students learning and emotional, social and emotional needs. Like Daniela says, we definitely have an opportunity to engage parents. When parents are more literate, then we know that the value of education for students in many different aspects go up. And that also, those interventions and policies made around adult literacy can also help communities progress. I think, was it Leonora and Chris? also mention what is so important, and I'm echoing this before I leave, is giving teachers a voice, giving teachers the opportunities as, to have a seat at the table in, those, in that decision-making. You know, we're on the front line. We know firsthand everything that's going on in the classroom. We know what it needs, what, what schools need to be successful. So give us the opportunity to do so. Include us in that, those critical decision-making process. In that way, you know, we feel valued, we feel respected, we feel like we are a part of the process and that those decisions are not made for us, but it's made with us. And just really going back, I think Daniela talked about Bring Your Why, and I think Eleonora said, talked about it earlier too, 
But, you know, sometimes it's really hard for teachers in marginalized schools, my school communities, to really think about, you know, your why when we have so many archaic policies and education systems that really tie our hands and not allow us to do the things that we need to do to make learning um to make students have quality learning or a quality education. And so we need to just get back to a point of changing, not just reforming education system, but really reform those archaic mindsets of how we think about students, of how we view teachers, of how we view educational systems. And just really stop micromanaging teachers, you know, with evaluation systems. And like, and I heard it earlier, stop seeing teachers from a deficit perspective and thinking about what Thinking about professional development is not about, you know, because you see us from a deficit mindset, but how can you help to build us? How can you upskill us? How can you let us not feel like we have something that is a deficit, but let us feel like you are professional development means that you are enhancing us. You are investing in us. You know, like Chris said, again, you know, those things, when we feel supported and when we feel like we are respected, we, there is a lower level of stress. So, you know, I would definitely like to encourage teachers that, you know, we are our students' greatest resource again, and we have to stay, we have to, again, go back to our why. You know, we, we came into this profession for a reason and we stuck it out for a reason when many people have left, you know, and with what's going on now, we all could have left and gone somewhere else because we know our skills and our talents are valuable in different areas of our society or our economy. And we can always contribute in many different ways, but we choose to stay and contribute in our classroom. We stay, we, we decide to stay with our students because we believe in them. And so because we believe in our students and we value our students, we want that from the system as well. We want to feel supported. We want to feel valued. And we want government and everyone in education to really invest in teachers, not because you see us as a tool to move this education engine forward, but because you see us also as drivers and you give us the opportunity to take that driver's seat as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much Tisha, for, for sharing that. Andreas, I, I, I want to come to you now then. I, and I think with all, all of what Akisha just shared, there is a question on, again, because I think you mentioned it at the beginning on teacher pay as being one element. And in some countries, it may be an important of, of the equation. What's the experience from say OECD countries in terms of how working conditions, teacher pay can be improved in a fiscally sustainable way in situations where actually, you know, the, the base is, is just too, too low. And how should that be part of broader efforts of governance to build back better after the pandemic? Yeah, you know, very good question. And no easy answer to this. And we see very different pay structures across countries. You know, you have to decide how much money do you give people initially in their career. And then, you know, how do you structure career profession to a career progression? You have to make choices between, you know, the monetary pay and other investments in the working conditions. And uh, what is very interesting, you know, you take a country like the, like the United States, where teacher pay is actually really poor and working conditions are also a problem. You take a country like Finland, where teacher pay is not very good either, but actually 
teaching is a very valued profession. Actually, they get nine applications for every teaching post. They don't have any issue with teacher shortage. Or would be in the same category. That's actually teacher salaries are a good, but not great. But teaching is very much a valued profession. So I do think we have to look at the pay in the context of how do we actually allocate money? You know, you can spend your money only once. You can put it on the salary of the teacher. You can put it on the working conditions. You can put it on the quality of leadership. You can put it on the size of classes. You can put it on the time that teachers have for other things than teaching. And I think that's the holistic picture to look at. And there's a one, one very interesting aspect. We talk a lot about teacher professionalism and the value, uh, how teachers feel valued in society. We actually measure that. We have really good data on how teachers perceive their own status. And you can see enormous variability across countries. In some countries, actually, you know, teachers fear that they are the, you know, the engineers of society, the engineers of the future of the country. They're feeling the driver's seat. In other countries, not so. And that shows us, actually, this is something that public policy can address. This is not a question of society. This is about, you know, how we frame that job. Another point I want to make, when you ask, Teachers in early childhood education, they are generally across countries feel very much valued by society. You ask teachers in secondary schools, they feel the least valued. Now, what could be behind that? Well, if you think about early childhood education, that comes back to Keisha's point. You know, we have made early childhood education a whole of society enterprise. You know, parents are part of this. You talk with the, the teacher almost every day when you bring your child is a very close kind of social fabric behind it. And everybody feels part of that equation. When you talk about secondary schools, you know, we have sort of commodified that schooling. You know, students have become consumers of prefabricated content. Teachers have become some kind of service provider. Parents feel as client. We've created a distance that actually makes everybody a little wheel in the machine. That has very little to do with pay but with the perception of not being appreciated, valued by society. And then as you know, others have said, we respond to this, okay, let's put more training into place. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is really about, you know, how do we frame, you know, an, an education profession that is actually much closer connected with the learners, with the parents, with society. And then, you know, society will respond to that. We generally value professionals who you know, who you can talk to, who you are connected with. And the uh, question, you know, of teacher voice, I, I, I very much agree with this, you know, where, where education systems engage teachers in the design of public policy, teachers are much, are the champions of the implementation of policy. Where, you know, education systems announce public policies through the media and then you wait how people react. Well, you can expect how they react. I mean, the political economy is not very difficult to understand on this. So I think actually the answers to these questions and, and, and that's the context in which I would see the structure of pay. You know, generally, you know, I must say again, across OECD countries, there are three of 28 countries when teachers are paid more than workers with a, with a university qualification. In every other country, teacher pay ranks below. But still, you know, some of those countries where teacher pay is not so competitive have done really, really well in raising the status of the teaching profession and giving teachers, you know, that ownership of professional practice, to make them part of the profession, to create that collaborative culture in the school and across the school system. And I, I really think, you know, when we spend money, we should look at that whole equation rather than just, you know, isolate, you know, the salary and the class size from each other. 
Thank you very much, Andreas. And, and I think actually that contrast between early childhood education and secondary education is, is particularly enlightening. I have teenager kids and I do see the difference between, you know, they now tell me, you know, they, they are very critical of schools about curriculum, how impractical they are critical of teachers. And of course, when they were young, they just went there. <laughs> and didn't obviously ha have a voice. And I think it has a lot to do with what you're saying. These are very different situations that teachers face. And Leonora, teacher retention. I mean, again, I think what Andreas and I think everybody has been saying is that the, you know, increasing the value, the social value and prestige of the profession is absolutely key. Those are things that take time to do. Any, any examples of, you know, policies that have managed to achieve relatively quick wins. For politicians, time horizons are relatively short and, 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 and they're always looking for things that, you know, can produce results relatively quickly. Um, teacher professional development is, you know, again, in many cases, the, that perception and feeling of being effective is very important. You know, what do we know about also ways in which teacher professional development can be improved relatively in the short term? Thank you. What I have found, thank you, thank you for that. What I have found, aside from what Andreas mentioned, and of the increasing the, the perception of teachers as professionals, one of the things that I have found is to try to codify that into, so what does that mean? What can we do? And I have found, for example, some initiatives, and these are not, I have not found yet any national policy that I can reflect on to say, oh, some country is doing this or some other country is doing that. But I have found in local communities or local school districts or no local, even sometimes states within countries, that they have created initiatives that can help with the, with the retention of teachers. One, for example, that I know well was a very large urban district in Massachusetts, where I live in the United States, where they invited universities to invite teachers to be partners in research projects that have to do with education in classrooms. So many times think about how researchers in the universities go into classrooms and we observe and we collect data and we do all kinds of things, putting the teacher either as an object of the study or taking the teacher out of the equation because we're looking at the children. And what they invited us to do was, can you include the teacher so that the research study includes the teacher as a researcher? And in a way, if you think about what they were asking us was, can you recognize the level of professionalism that teachers as practitioners can bring into your research project? And I have seen that done very successfully. And it's one of the things that I have found that really teachers then begin to see themselves in a different light, it begins to change the perception within the district with the families about teachers as professionals. And then it begins to change the perspective about, okay, so who are these teachers when I think about them as professionals? As you say, yes, this does take time. It takes time to change the perspective. But I think that one of the made learn, in a way, lessons that we have from the pandemic is that we have to spend time, in a way, educating societies about teachers as professionals. It's, it's not, not necessarily teaching the teachers, it's teaching the society where the teachers are to change the perspective about who teachers are and who teach, what teachers do. There are many, many people who think of teachers 
just in a way as interpreters of instructions that are given to them by ministries of education or secretaries of education. So the, the secretary of education tells you to do that and then you go and follow the orders. And that's not what teachers do. Teachers are creative, innovative. Teachers, when they are really well prepared and educated, teachers are actual professionals who make decisions. I usually tell my student teachers, get ready because one of the more challenging things about teaching, and particularly in the first few years, is that you realize how many decisions you make every hour of every day, that you don't have a whole lot of time to think about that you have to on the spot. Well, we need to educate societies about what teachers do as professionals, because that will change the perspective and then also include the teachers in the professional work that educators do in general, include the teachers in designing curriculum, include the teachers in doing research, include the teachers in decision-making, bring them into the table when there are decisions being discussed. Doing all those kinds of things in a way will reaffirm we value you as professionals. We recognize you are a professional. And as a result, hopefully that will attract more people into this profession. We'll value society, we'll begin to value it more. And then hopefully that will begin to change. Yes, that is long-term, but I think that we also need to think about for the more immediate ones. I don't know that I would have a recommendation at the national level to do something. I think that we really have to trust that at local communities, we need to begin by thinking about what is the need in that local community? What is the role of that teacher in that local community? What are the conditions? What is the preparation? And then take it from there so that then we can really build from there to a more, a bigger picture, a macro level, a national level. But to try to start at the national level, it would get tangled up into too much politics. We don't have time for that. In education, we really need to begin the work right there, right now, because we really have a lot to recover and a lot to pay attention to. And all of this in the context, of course, of paying attention to the well-being of teachers. So we cannot forget that all of this has to be in the context of social-emotional learning and social-emotional development, because both for the students and for the teachers. So that would be my recommendation. In terms of initiatives, I really am trying to collect initiatives that are happening. I think that there are lots and lots of wonderful initiatives in very specific context and communities and countries, but I don't have any one in particular that I, that I say, okay, this is right to share. Let's, let's talk about that one. I think that we, the work continues in many ways. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think this is a good segue then to bite back at the end because, you know, programs like Atentamente can make a difference in the relatively short term. So Daniela, I want to ask you, you know, what are some lessons learned from your experience in, in Mexico in terms of, let's say first, the mistakes to be avoided. If any, anybody wants to try something like Atentamente in another context, what, are, what would be the two, three things that you say, well, be careful, pay attention to these issues in implementation. And of course, lessons about things that obviously are important for a program like this to work. Thank you. Thank you, Omar. Just one thought about what Leonora was saying, maybe on the optimistic side of things, saying, I think that the pandemic, what we see here is that we did 
it did change, at least in Mexico, the perception about teachers. You know, it's like, wow, actually, what a job they do. You know, once you have your kids in your house and there's all this, all this complexity of teaching and what the whole meaning of school is, you know, I think for society at large. So I do think there is a, a new value regarding teachers and enhanced respect. Though now, when we come back, what we see in Mexico is that there is like, okay, now you have to catch up with everything and you have to, and there's no real support. So then, you no, know, that uh, idea in society then comes, as you were all saying, to archaic forms and to um, a circumstance, an environment that is not really helping them. No, so so they are very very exhausted, and they're being asked again, yeah, yet again to to do more and recover soon, and and no, like walk. So I think I I really hear what you were saying, Kisha, and everybody here. Just I wanted to address that point because I do think there is there is a shift, and I think it's important to you know that we value two things the importance of teachers and the importance of mental health and, and well-being. And as we see how scarce resource it was, you know, in the pandemic, right? And I think the value of that is upfront. And I think that's why we're having this conversation and programs are moving. And I think that is a really very big lesson learned. In terms of mistakes, you're saying, Omar, I think one thing that I would want to encourage is really we Teachers are at the utmost front. They're the central piece in education, but we have to work with all the adults. We cannot yet again, you know, like, oh, now you teachers have to, <laughs> no, and we, we have to support the principals. We have to support the people around. If we want to change the culture, you know, which will be and take time. And I think we have to help people really, other, other administrators and, and people in education really build this, be sensitive to this and build this capacity. We saw this in the big, big project in Construyete. There was like high school nationwide program that we, for social emotional learning. And we saw this, we, we were happy to participate there. It was 200,000 teachers, 4 million high schoolers. And when the principals were sensitized and, and on board with buy-in towards social emotional learning and teacher well-being, it was a whole different thing. The impact was much bigger, right? So I think we definitely need to work on the system, no, not just on the adult system, not just on the teachers. And that would be one big, big learning. And we can see what you're saying. I mean, we have to take the time and give people time to train. And you were talking about context, like, not the context of the particular state, the particular school, the particular population, no? And really give those, those, the time to build these capacities, these capacities for kindness, these resilience capacities, these capacities to collaborate, to establish better relationships, to teach in the classroom, the social emotional skills, for example, to model. So this definitely takes time. And I think we need to, and we need to hear what I think we learned a lot that when we stop and really try to connect directly with the teachers and the supervisors or in Mexico, supervisors are right above principals. That's how we call them. <laughs> so though, so really with the principals, with the supervisors, what's going on? What's the rhythm? What's, what's happening? And trying to really adjust, you know, what we're doing to their own rhythms. I think that is something very, very important. And, uh, and well, we see a lot of what you were saying. The rotation is really high. 
no? And this is like, we see teachers change and they change. I, we don't even understand why, you know, they change the principals every year and the teachers from school. And so we need to have a training that we can promote that local capacity and processes, these systems, like you're saying, that can really sustain and improve this continuous professional training for social and emotional competency, for teaching and leadership development. This has to be continuous, no? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for us, Omar, as you were asking, because we our program is, is lasts like a year, no? But education is not a year and transformations are not within a year, right? So you need to, to keep or formulate that internal capacity, built-in capacity for the teachers and the systems to sustain that change. And I think that's something we would really have to focus. And the one other thing that I would mention is definitely the inclusion of parents. How do we build, and even at, at as you're saying, Andreas, not just in, in early childhood, where the parents are naturally more involved. Like you say, it's a, it's a whole thing. And I guess they're, they're even more enthused by their young children. But, but even in high school and the like, how do we keep on building a shared vision for the education we want to give our, our children? We're all educators, you know, parents and all of us as adults in society. So how do we work with the parents to build this shared vision for education in which we do not only see academic competency as 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 important, no, but we see the development of the whole human being and the and the well being, and so I think that that would be another thing: the involvement and shared vision with parents. Thank you. We are unfortunately running out of time, which is something I fear from the beginning. But so I I, I hope that I can stay maybe a couple more minutes beyond are in time because I do want to bring at least quickly again, Chris and Tara, but you know, if I can keep it to keep it brief, Chris, anything you want to share or add to what has been said again, from the experience of the context in, in which you work in this area? Yeah, and I think that's actually a great question to finish with and something I'd insist that we do. And I know a lot of us are doing it. Is sort of play our part in flipping this narrative around who teachers are and the role teachers play. And yeah, I mentioned before that, in fact, it was the teachers in classrooms at refugee camps that were speaking a lot more optimistically and a lot more reflectively on the value that teachers bring to those camps when, in fact, some of the international agencies that I represent who were deficit theorizing those same teachers. And that exists at scale as well. And if we want to look at examples of where we're seeing some real progress in policy, with, particularly with refugee teachers, teachers working in crisis and conflict, again, these, these progressive policies don't come from the global north. They don't come from what we would consider to be highly efficient and functional systems. In fact, they're from systems that we, again, often, often deficit theorize. So, for example, the Djibouti Declaration in the Horn of Africa allows teachers who have crossed borders, fleeing conflict, fleeing persecution, to carry their certification with them, to carry that status with them so that they can work wherever they find themselves and contribute to society. And that is a key well-being issue. They see themselves as included, respected, and of value. And in Chad, for instance, it is national education policy that any refugee teacher arriving in Chad has the ability to be part of that national system, to be paid within the national system, and to be respected as a teacher in the national system, even though they have come from across the border from abroad. And so I, I use those two points to look at where are we finding impressive policies that are actually having 
a demonstrable impact on teacher well-being and particularly on their ability to work, access professional development, access appropriate compensation. I think that's, that's really important. And the final point I'd love to make is at the Transforming Education Summit over the last few months in Paris and in New York, I was really pleased to see that teachers were the top line priority of all governments contributing to that summit. What I take issue with is that we're now saying the journey to transform education begins now. And I'd argue that we've been on this journey for a long time. Since the 1990 Education for All Declaration in John Tien, we've been talking about teachers. This journey has not just begun. In fact, this journey has become so much more urgent. And I want to finish with that. Thank you so much. I guess what we need is a fresh restart more than saying that the journey is starting. Tara, there, I wanted to address a question to you on scale, but I'm afraid that we're out of time and I, I would just direct people connected to actually a paper you wrote with David Evans on the key principles that can guide teacher policy at scale. But I, I want to ask you then, I will ask others in the panel to be prepared to do the same, to have a parting thought to those teachers that are hopefully connected today and have stay with us. Any, any, any parting thought that you have that you want to address to them, please. And if you can keep it brief, that way I can do a quick round with everybody. Absolutely. So I'll quote the other Yidan Prize winner, Linda Darling Hammond, and say that teaching is the profession upon which all other professions depend. So this is really the profession and we have to do everything to be able to support you. Thanks, Omar. Thank you, Tara. Andreas. Parting thought to teachers. I think we may have lost Andreas already. I'll bring you then, Eleonora. I would say thank you to all the teachers and to keep remembering that by design, we are agents of social change. So keep doing what you're doing because if we're going to make this world a better place, it's in the hands of the teachers more than anybody else. Excellent. Daniela? Again, I guess I would second Leonora here that really what you're doing is so important. And I think we are, many of us are really trying to help. No? And I think there's a lot being done. And I think we can do many things together. This is possible, as you say, it's an ongoing, <laughs> but I think the focus is, is more clear now. So please don't stop. We're here to support you as much as we can. Thank you. Chris? Oh, thank you. And in fact, my, my class has actually just entered the classroom, so I have to make this really brief. I think the main point I'd love to make is that, yes, teacher well-being is central. We need to celebrate teachers. We need to champion teachers. But if we're not also compensating and collaborating with teachers in the way that they deserve, then really, I mean, we have to ask ourselves what we're doing and, and how we're doing more than just lip service, to put it bluntly. So, yeah, we need to follow up those urgent actions and really, really put teachers at the center in policy and practice. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, and Tisha, you have the last word. You're muted. Yeah, well, thank you. And I would say in honor of celebrating World Teachers Day and their their theme being the transformation of education begins with teachers. You know, this really reminds us again that teachers are students' greatest resource. And if 
there's going to be any progress that happens in the world. The world needs education and education needs teachers. Teachers are our superheroes. Our weapon is education. And what we want to do with that weapon is to change the world. So I would like to just leave with that and just say to all teachers, stay the course because we are needed in this world. And without us, the, and the, the train cannot continue on the track. So we're needed. So feel valued, feel supported, and just lean on each other. And happy Teacher's Day, happy World Teacher's Day, wherever you are. Wonderful. I cannot think of any better way to end this session today. I want to thank you all. I want to thank you, Asha, Daniela, Eleonora, Chris, and Tara, and, and Andreas for sharing the time with us and for everybody who has connected. And to the teachers, again, happy Teacher's Day. Thank you very much. Thank <music> you.